obviously everything that happened with the trash panda simply because maybe it's not good for an initiator, but it's going to be fun for us. And because you have such a big following, people who will listen to this episode want to hear more about that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's an unfortunate event, but it is it is nevertheless an event that is quite an interesting one. So, Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I think if people want to listen to the first half and then tune out, that's okay, because I think most of the audience that will come from your side will want to say, listen to the second half more than anything else, so we shouldn't exclude it. Mm-hmm. Agree, agree. Welcome to Adelante, the podcast filled with inspiring stories of people embracing their uniqueness. I'm Alfonso Comino, your host. Four Apes Jazz Club, Degenerate Ape Academy, Thugbirds, Solana Monkey Business, Degenerate Trash Pandas. Do any of these names sound familiar to you? They are all NFTs. Yeah, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, the image that people are purchasing for millions of dollars. Our guest today is D-Saint Eclectic. Now, that doesn't sound like a regular name, does it? D-Saint Eclectic is an anonymous person operating under a pseudonym persona. He is an NFT collector and educator. In this special episode, we demystify what NFTs are as well as elaborate further into a common project we both collaborate in. The first half of the episode is suitable for all audiences as we build step-by-step what cryptocurrencies are and how do NFTs come to play. We explore if NFTs are a Ponzi scheme or the equivalent of investing in Amazon back in 1999 or somewhere in between. Design Eclectic is a terrific educator. He's able to break down complex material into simple to understand concepts. Whether you are new to this space or a veteran, this conversation will have something for you. This podcast is for education only and should not serve as investing advice. Most NFTs projects will just die. Be selective where you spend your money on. Enjoy this conversation with the Saint Eclectic. Saint Eclectic, thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to highlight to everybody listening that actually I do not know your identity. I don't know where you're calling from. I don't know where you're from. I can assume your gender, but I do not actually know by a fact. I don't know anything about yourself because you operate under a pseudonym called Saint Eclectic. And this has become your persona. And I think a good way for us to start is if you can explain why you do that, um, what does Saint Eclectic come from? Yeah, excellent. Alfonso, so great to be on your show. First of all, thank you for having me. And you're right. I am operating under a pseudonym. Uh, it's a name. It's an identity. Uh, it's not my real one, but it's something that gives me a little bit of freedom to make comments um, and also share my views. And part of that comes from the ethos of crypto, right? Which has always been about decentralization, freedom, and people being able to operate and say things in the manner that they wish uh, without necessarily being stopped. Uh, and so a big part of that is ensuring that your identity uh, is represented by something else. Maybe it's an avatar, maybe it's an interesting name. But the way in terms of background of where the saint comes from is that it was one of the first NFTs that I purchased. Uh, I didn't look particularly for anything, but it was one that had a halo over its head. And given that I had purchased that NFT, I decided, okay, well, what has a halo over its head? A saint. And that's where the word was born. As for eclectic, you know, that word means uh, being diverse, uh, a wide range of things. And I mean, something like NFTs, where there are many different kinds of NFTs, uh, many different types of art that it represents, 
that I thought the word eclectic was a good one because at any time you might want to change your picture to something else. Uh, and so that's how it sort of hung together. So in your case, uh, this image that we're going to talk in a second called NFT came actually before than the name and you took the identity from that image that you minted or you purchased. And we'll talk about NFTs for the uninitiated on a second. But in your case, the image came before the name and then you adopted that identity and you have since run with that and it has grown into quite a bit of a persona. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. The NFT in picture came first, which is kind of funny because you're right. There's something about just the picture representing a character that you start to feel a little bit more like that. It will be different for everybody to form an identity that you might not necessarily be like in real life. And then you really engage with it uh, and then it becomes your persona online. And so that's how it's really turned out to be for me. And uh, it was quite an interesting and unexpected adventure and journey. So on the internet, we went from animosity at the very beginning, where we have like chat rooms back in the day and everybody had a name for that session. And then you have to re-put the name later on. That's many years ago. And then we went through a phase of kind of everybody showing the real name of most people um, with things like blue checks on Twitter and, and real identities on other platforms like Facebook. And now the new trend of animosity is taking over the internet once again. So some people say the internet was always set up to work this way. So one of the things I like about operating this way is that allows people to just be judged on what they say or the work they do or the contributions of certain things that can be measured that are completely disconnected with their identity. I think it's really equalitarian and it's something really beautiful to see. And that's what I wanted to have you on the show. You're right. Look, I mean, there's good and bad. You know, sometimes when your real name is not out there, you might be free to say things that are perhaps a little bit more controversial. But I think what we're really seeing here is just another evolution of the internet and uh, evolution of the way that people want to react. I'm sure you were there when the internet started out. I was, and back then it was all sort of pseudonymous as well. And then, as you mentioned, we kind of moved into the Web2 phase where people started using Facebook, MySpace, Snapchat, and all these platforms and using their real names. But now what we're seeing with the advent of crypto and decentralization and the notion that people can actually do things via Web3, we're starting to see people creep back into what you know the internet used to be like. And for me personally, that's really exciting because it's taking me all the way back to a decade plus ago. Yeah, I definitely was there. So what I like to do is we divide the first half sort of for the uninitiated on things like crypto and NFTs and then we geek out a little bit on the second half because you and I met through a common project that generate trash pandas. And one of the things that you do is that you educate people um, online about crypto and NFTs. And I always follow you because I learn a lot from you. And in fact, I learn so much. Sometimes I even bring some of your learnings home and secondhand educate my wife because she also has a mild interest on this. For example, I use some of your content about fair launch protocol and because of the work you did, I was able to educate my wife as well. So even before we start, I really want to thank you because you put a lot of work online to educate people on the space, something that is, I would say, widely misunderstood even today. And uh, I think we can spend some time demystifying what crypto and NFTs are. So one of the things I want to ask you is, what would be the best way to describe somebody what cryptocurrencies are? Great. First of all, thank you. It heartens me to hear that people are learning from what I write. Um, it's a learning process because this space evolves very quickly. So things are often changing. Uh, and I felt that just because I have a passion about this space, I really want to share it 
Um, and it's something that I always found that was difficult to share with a lot of my friends in real life because it can be very complex. It can be very daunting. And sometimes people find it hard to engage if they haven't spent the hours researching. So for me, writing online was just an outlet, a way to share my love of it uh, because I was struggling to explain myself to my friends who would look at me uh, in a very confused way. And fortunately, I found the ability to connect and interact with a lot of people globally that have this interest. And it's really given me a lot of heart. So, you know, first of all, thank you. I'm glad that you've shared it with your, your wife. Now, the first question you asked, what is cryptocurrencies? I think most people are familiar with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, it's the one that's been around the longest. It was the one that first created the technology for there to be a decentralized way to have a currency, so to speak. Uh, and what this means is that uh, you can buy or sell Bitcoin and it will be recorded in the ledger uh, across the world. That ledger is backed up by a whole bunch of computers who are mining everything. And the importance of that is that you are able to verify who has spent what Bitcoin and who has sent what Bitcoin to where. And the interesting thing is in the past, we would have banks doing all of that, right? They would have big ledgers inside their systems uh, and they would operate in between one another. But ultimately, you still had to trust a bank at the end of the day to get a transaction through. Now, with the advent of cryptocurrencies, you're not trusting a bank. You're simply trusting a system that gets backed up by miners across the world. And that's what's so beautiful because it cannot be stopped. Uh, banks cannot come in and stop a transaction. If you have sent something, it is final. Uh, so there's also that downside of it as well, meaning that you know sometimes uh, once something is sent, it is final. So Bitcoin was the, the first cryptocurrency and has wide following around the world. It's since grown into other uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, such as Ethereum. And the reason why Ethereum has sort of emerged is because not only can you send or receive uh, money in the form of Ethereum, but you can actually do more complex things. You can enter into these things called smart contracts that basically run a program for you, right? And again, there is no one that you need to trust on this end. So uh, what is an example of it? It would be a very simple if statement. So for example, if Alfonso sends five Ethereum to this address, this address will pay him 10% interest on that over a period of X, right? And that can be written into a contract, uh, what they call a smart contract. And that is the next evolution of cryptocurrencies. So money that you can send between people, but then also money that you can send into contracts that are automated for you. So I guess you explained two of the most known layer one cryptocurrencies, which is Bitcoin, uh, which is like you mentioned the way most people probably get initiated into cryptocurrency because of the the biggest name and being you know the first mover advantage I guess it still prevails for Bitcoin and still have a lot of importance and because of the market capitalization unlikely to go away anytime soon. You also mentioned Ethereum, which is probably a much more I would say important part of the short history of cryptocurrency already because of that component of a smart contracting where people can automate trust between unknown parties, right? So I think, I guess that's 
what cryptocurrency really highlights is that you can securely do things with people you don't know, knowing that the outcome will be guaranteed. And one of the things that you and I have in common is that we follow another cryptocurrency of layer one known as Solana, which for you and I maybe is everyday talk, but I think it's not so known out there. Um, I don't know how many people will know what Solana is if we ask them on the street, but I will say it's still a very small percentage of people, despite the impact that it's having on the crypto world. How will you describe the rise of Solana and what is Solana? Yeah, absolutely. I think to understand the rise of Solana, let's jump back to Bitcoin and Ethereum first. As with most things in life, technology improves exponentially over time. It gets better, it gets faster, it gets cheaper and more efficient to use. Bitcoin is very secure, but it is expensive and relatively slow to use. I mean, much faster than normal banking methods uh, like SWIFT transfers, for example. But the mechanism by which it operates, by which the, the ledger is written, uh, takes time. So if you were to send a Bitcoin to someone, right, it could take anywhere between 10 to 20 minutes sometimes, maybe sometimes even longer if the network is jammed. Uh, and that's part of the fact that it uses this system called proof of work to ensure the validity of transactions. That's simply how uh, the computers around the world ensure that they reach consensus on who has sent what money to who. Ethereum is uh, similar. Right now, it is also on a proof-of-work system where miners have to solve a problem, uh, like a complex mathematical problem, in order for them to uh, write the next transaction. And so Ethereum is also still quite slow and expensive, right? You can almost pay upwards of 10 to 20 US dollars for a simple transaction. And when the network is really being used a lot, you will be competing against other people who want to use that resource and it can even sometimes go up to hundreds of dollars, even to the thousands of dollars, if you really want to push something through quickly. Now, Ethereum is going to move to a different uh, consensus mechanism over time. So it will become cheaper by uh, next year. But right now, the demand for cryptocurrencies and the ability to send money and interact with smart contracts is really high. So what happens when you have such huge demand, but a really expensive uh, and relatively slow solution like Ethereum. Well, people start looking to other alternatives, and this is what they call layer ones, layer one cryptocurrencies, the base system on which they uh, have a ledger that writes the transactions between people. This is where Solana comes in. It was developed by uh, some engineers, uh, Anatoly Yakovenko, uh, out in California, and his background was in engineering, working for one of the microprocessor companies. And as part of this, he found a solution where the consensus mechanism would essentially be something like proof of stake. Um, and what that means is that to write the next transaction, right, you don't need to solve a complex mathematical problem. You simply just have to have a computer that has uh, the underlying currency called Solana on it, and then it will randomly uh, pick any validator to write the next transaction. And what results is something with uh, incredible speed. So your transactions get uh, validated within you know, a couple of seconds, right? Three to five seconds, let's say, and ridiculously low costs. It's not even one cent each transaction. So it's low latency, it's low cost, uh, and it's a blockchain that's decentralized and that people can interact in a trustless manner. It effectively does a lot of what Ethereum does. Uh, there's always pros and cons with everything, of course. Uh, but its usability 
is very high. And that's why it has seen a lot of uh, a rise of its popularity and importance today. Right. So Solana is the rising level one cryptocurrency because it allows for really fast transaction at a really low cost, which is a really nice addition on top of Ethereum. And like you mentioned, Ethereum will move to a much more comparable way of operating, like let's say one year from now, although those deadlines keep moving. But one year from now in cryptocurrency is a very long time, right? So if if Solana still has one more year of runway in front of it and developers really start developing other platforms which or other cryptocurrencies called as level two, which use that layer to build something else on top, then obviously Solana has a, a big space to run. But that takes me to a different point and the one that you are known for, which is NFTs, which means non-fungible token, is basically uh, something that is a single unity of the existence of, uh, on the digital world. And you are known for collaborating many projects, as you highlighted before. You even adopt the online identity as one of them. So just to set the table, and if you don't mind me asking, how many NFTs do you own today, for example? Do you know? <laughs> I could tell you the answer, and the answer is I don't know. I have so many of them uh, that I haven't even bothered to keep track, right? Uh, let's say of the blue chip or flag chip, NFTs, I might have five to 10 thereabouts uh, of each of them on the Solana blockchain. I don't have as many on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and simply because uh, it's a more costly blockchain to interact on. But it is the one that is probably the most populous and uh, the one that has more scale right now than Solana, although that's quickly changing. Uh, it was interesting that you, you mentioned the pivot to NFTs. For the listener who maybe doesn't have that background, blockchains can be used for a variety of things, right? I mean, we mentioned moving money and transactions between people. Then we suggested the smart contract where, you know, I could send some money to a contract and it would pay me uh, in interest. And at some point I get it back, right? The other use is uh, what you're alluding to, Alfonso, is, is an NFT, right? And there's a lot of questions around what an NFT is, right? There's a lot of mystique. But really all it is, is just a token that verifies that you have ownership over a particular digital asset, whether that is a picture, a JPEG, video, or some kind of audio clip. All it is, is simply a marker of ownership that is saved on the blockchain in your address. And when it's saved in your address, it means you own it. Yeah. And thank you for explaining what NFT is. I was going to get there the next question. The reason I started asking how many you have is I wanted people that doesn't follow you as closely as I do to know that you really have a skin on this game. So anything you say moving forward from this point will have a lot of uh, importance for the listener. So you say you have let's call it 10 of the blue chips plus. Can I ask you, if you had to sell them all at once today and there was liquidity, what would that fetch for? If you absolutely sell all these digital JPEGs, as some people call, what would be the amount that you will get? This one's a tricky question, Alfonso. I'll have to admit, I haven't calculated it. Simply because my approach is always, whenever I buy an NFT, I try to mark that to zero in my head. So it enforces discipline to make sure that I do try and make the right decisions. I still make plenty of wrong decisions, don't get me wrong, but this is one approach that uh, people should consider because JPEGs are generally illiquid. They are difficult to sell, right? Unless there is really good demand for it. And typically there are for some of the good collections. 
Now, in terms of value, some of the blue chips that uh, I've invested in, at least the Solana blue chips, right? If we look at DGNA Academy, an entry NFT for the most common one could be about 5,000, 6,000 USD at the moment, right? Uh, a thug bird, which is a pixel bird, could be around 9,000 per bird per entry. And then a Solana monkey business, which is a, a pixel monkey at the moment, trading around 30 to 40,000 USD. At least for the blue chip uh, ones, there's definitely value right now. Um, but it, it's always hard to tell because there must be a buyer, right? And by the very name, non-fungible token, it's not something like a, a share in Amazon, which is fungible, right? It's not something like a, a cryptocurrency even, which is fungible. It's a very specialized NFT with different features and traits. And so the buyer is going to want to have that one to buy it. Yeah, that answers my question. I don't need to know the exact amount. That's very difficult to calculate. But it is good to know that those numbers are very high, um, even for a single one. So let's say you talk to a person that doesn't know much about NFTs, which you know I count myself in that space, let's say, six months ago. Somebody will tell me that uh, what most people describe as a JPEG, a photo that you can right-click and download on your own computer will fetch for millions of dollars, right? We have seen the Boar Apes, uh, which is in Ethereum, fetch for, I think the highest is 3.5 million, or I'm not sure. I, I really don't want to keep track, but let's say well into the million dollars. So how can you explain to somebody who is unaware of NFTs and, and perhaps crypto, why people is paying such amounts for something that most people describe as a JPEG photography? Yeah, absolutely. This is the number one question that everybody has. I will admit that I had the same question. I'd been in crypto for a little while, and when I saw NFTs, my initial reaction and gut feeling was that, wow, this is a Ponzi, it's a bubble, it's going to fall in on itself. Why would anyone pay money for, let's say, a digital image or a JPEG, right? You can simply just right-click it and save it. Well, I think part of it is that what you're buying is ownership in something that gives you access to a community. And these things typically tend to be scarce. What do I mean by that? Is that, for example, the Bored Ape uh, collection that you mentioned, there are only 10,000 of those NFTs that were minted. Of course, you could have bought them for very cheap back in the day, but they've since become a cultural phenomenon. They've since you know, had a really strong community. We've seen celebrity participation on that, such as Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Curry, the basketball player, uh, bass jackers, uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of people, right? And there's only 10,000 of them in the world. So there's that scarcity that gets built into that. But then it's also the community that gets you access to. Because once you own one of these NFTs, you can join their Discord. Uh, you can get access to benefits, be it merchandise, be it access to events. Uh, and that is really what people are paying for, right? The access to community, the scarcity. The third thing that people pay for also, uh, and this one's a funny one because we see it all around the world, right? Is the flex, right? Because there are only 10,000 of these things and they're expensive. Buying one sometimes is a flex. And you can see that in something like CryptoPunks because on the surface, they're a very simple pixel image, right? Must not have taken that much effort to put them together, but they were one of the first NFTs that were released on the Ethereum blockchain several years ago. Uh, again, they're a scarce number, but Everyone that gets them takes them because they are a flex. Right. And with flex, you mean to show your power on the online world by only one of these entities, right? Yes. So there's two other points that you mentioned other than 
flexing status is community and scarcity. So I'd like to start with scarcity because you said that it's 10,000 of the poor apes and you and I participate in other projects that also have similar numbers or just about. So my question is, how does scarcity work in the NFT world and how people understand what is the difference between what is considered a top rank NFT within that collection and uh, lower ranks. A lot of people who is uninitiated, this sounds a little bit, you know, strange to understand. Can you explain rarities, traits, scarcity? Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, the supply is controlled, right? That part is artificial because there's only 10,000 of them. And if you think about it in real world terms, it's like an an artist uh, only releasing 10,000 shoes. Maybe Yeezy has a 10,000 shoe collection with a special commemorative album plate or something like that. And there's only ever going to be 10,000 of this. Or uh, an artist uh, comes up with a piece of work, there's only going to ever be X number of this. So the guarantee that you have is that they're not going to release more of this beyond 10,000, right? Or if they do it, they're going to do it in a very considered way. And that's what ensures that at least the original collection of 10,000 holds its value, right? The other aspect, as you mentioned, is within the 10,000, uh, there will be traits or different rarities. So there will be common types of NFTs. So with a board apes, you might see normal looking eyes on the apes, and there might be, you know, 50% of them have the normal looking eyes. So the ones that have the normal looking eyes will technically be worth less than the ones with um, special eyes or laser eyes, because let's say the laser eye trait is only you know 100 or 200 of them. And so again, it, it harks back to scarcity. And so people actually pay up for these traits, right? You mentioned you know $3 million, $2 million board apes trading. I think some of them were the ones with gold skin, for example, and there's only a handful of those. And people would pay for them because visually they look good, right? And uh, rarity-wise, they're scarce. So that's why within the price of the NFTs, there's a wide range. And the ones that typically um, are the cheapest or what we, we call in NFT, well, the floor price tokens are the ones that typically will be the most common. Yeah, the thing that draw me into, and you mentioned flex, I'm personally not very interested on that. And you mentioned scarcity, which maybe is interesting to learn, but it's the other two aspects that we have touched. One is community, which I'll get to in a second. And the one you just mentioned is you said, if the project team rollouts more items, they will do in a considerate way. And I think that's important because one of the things that draw me to NFTs is the share common interest on anybody who participates for that project to work out. It's this distribution of benefit across all players that I don't see in any other structure. So yes, you can own shares of a given company, and that is more relatable to an NFT than, let's say, I own a picture. But one of the things that people don't understand is that the project that runs these NFTs will normally get royalties for every sale that happens after they release the project, right? So they have like a royalty fee that follows them because of the smart contract, which means there's alignment of interest that is very, very strong for a project that most people assume is a photo. So can you explain the mechanics of the alignment of interest? Yeah, so I think the royalties one that you bring up is a good one, and maybe that's something that most people don't understand. But when these NFTs get sold, typically the creators will automatically get a royalty uh, that's built into the smart contract in the blockchain, and it means that they will get typically anywhere between three to five percent, 
So it's in their interests for there to be a lot of volume. So a lot of people buying and selling these NFTs because they're popular, but also large values, right? So imagine you sell something for a million and you get 5% of that. That is $50,000. It's a big amount for the original creators. So it really is in their interests to ensure that they protect the value of the project and the NFT collection um, and that they maintain that scarcity and rare quality of it. So one of the interesting part of that is that now the creator of the project have consistent revenue streams coming their way if the project is successful, right? So they're incredibly incentivized to do that in the same way that a musician may be incentivized to distribute their music as widely as possible through concert. When I went into my first project, I wanted to learn about alignment of incentive. That's what I really got started and how I got to learn about yourself. And the second thing that is very particular to NFTs that you mentioned is that community aspect. So what is some of the community aspects that come when you purchase one of these NFTs and how important is for the project? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting. If we can rewind before you said, you can just right-click save this picture, right? Why would anyone pay for it? But, you know, someone out there has said, well, can you right-click save culture and community? It's much harder to do that, right? If we think about engagement, engagement really comes from human interaction, from social constructs that make us want to keep coming back to a certain project. And that's where these NFTs and the project teams behind them have created value for a lot of people. So the moment you buy a board ape, the moment you buy a DGen ape on the Solana network, you have access to the Discord. And those channels are gated communities. You must have the token inside your wallet for you to access these communities. And then once you can, you can enter the chat rooms and you can interact with other people who have these uh, tokens there as well. Now, the next question naturally is, why would I pay 10000 let alone 100000 let alone a million for one of these entry passes? Well, simply because the community that you engage with are just very passionate people from all around the world. You know, it's a very odd thing, Alfonso. It's like, once you get the picture or the NFT or the, or the JPEG, there's a shared love of it. So people, for the most part, bring positivity to the community. They want to improve things. They want to help people. They also want to learn, right? Um, you yourself said that you dabbled with a few projects just to see an experiment. And once you enter the community, you realize that there's more experienced people there that can help you get up to speed in terms of uh, understanding blockchain, looking at opportunities. Uh, it might be investment opportunities. It might even be considering the next NFT that you might want to purchase and you need some advice, right? And especially in today's world where a lot of us are stuck in our homes, uh, we've been quarantined or there are movement orders because of COVID, uh, suddenly having access to an online community uh, easily 24 hours a day is something that adds value to people's lives. Yeah, and it does sound a little bit crazy from the outside, I must say, if you don't dip your toes to try to understand. So without being investment advice, one of the things I would suggest anybody that has curiosity is to find one of those NFTs that has both a good community, but a fairly cheap enterprise. And within Solana projects, there might be quite a few of that. And don't see that money as you're buying a photo, see that money as spending on your own education. The way I justify my first expense is like, well, I will definitely spend this money if it was an education course about NFTs. So I just buy the NFT and get my own education by participating. Another advice I have for the uninitiated 
is that NFTs are very addictive because they have this powerful community that you're right, it's very easy to feel aligned with people in the same project. So it is quite addictive. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the thing, right? Like I did not understand this until I tried it for myself. And I often say the same things to my friends, right? Just get something cheap, interact with the community and see how you feel. There's something about our psychology and the way that we are built where ownership of something suddenly makes you a little bit more proud, suddenly makes you a little bit more invested and more interested um, in that community. And then on the other aspect of it, we are social creatures. We want to have those interactions, right? Well, most of us anyway. And this is the element that NFTs bring at the moment. Now, in future, they might bring different things, right? They might bring more utility. They might even do something very mundane, like a ticket to a concert or something like that. But for now, the way that these things are organized, it's really about social interaction, opening up um, you to a gated community and bringing value into your life in a way that you didn't expect. And it really hits all of the social notes and Maslow's hierarchy of needs of social interaction. Yeah. And another way to see is for me, the expense of the NFT is to have access to people like yourself as a one-on-one because I get to learn so much from you. But you mentioned Flex before. And I said, personally, I have no interest, but a lot of people does. So I heard in a podcast this week that when Stephen Curry, who's a very famous NBA player, bought his board ape, he actually participates now in the community. So any other person that actually had purchased an ape, whether they purchase when it were fairly cheap or they purchase yesterday when they're very expensive, they actually get to interact with somebody who is a fairly famous person out there for anybody who likes basketball. So yeah, I think the social aspect is very important for anybody, whether you're doing it for learning or because you want to flex or because you want to meet interesting people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> celebrities and, and all that are very busy people, so they definitely don't uh, hang out 24-7 in the community servers. But uh, from what I understand, when Stephen Curry did jump into the board, the, the community went wild. It was really exciting. And they opened doors as well, right? So suddenly it's being used for marketing and the more people jump on it, the better for the brand. Right. And that brand is shared with anybody who already owns an NFT. I think that's the important part here is that alignment of incentive to everybody. So I think it's a good segue for me to ask what happened recently. And I guess this is where we start geeking out a little bit, but what happened recently in Hong Kong, a project called the Degenerate Ape Academy? What was that project that the team and you did to raise awareness for that project? So maybe before we even get into that, it might be worthwhile setting the scene for people, right? So we spoke about different blockchains. There's Ethereum, right? That's one blockchain. There's Solana, that's one blockchain. You know, there's other blockchains out there like Luna, Algorand, and, and so on and so forth. But let's focus on Solana. Right. The reason why it's had so much amazing traction is because of uh, its speed and its low transaction cost. And in August sometime, there was a uh, premier project called the Degenerate Ape Academy, where the NFT was this 3D ape. Uh, it looked ridiculous. Some of them had funny things on their head. Some of them had funny things on their mouth. But it was rendered really well by the artist who's a project lead. Um, Monolith is his name. And people just really engaged with the project, with the marketing, with the art, right? Because the whole concept around it, being a degen ape, is uh, the, the word degen simply just means people love to get into things quickly without thinking too much, just having fun um, and doing as much of it as possible, right? So that was the ethos and attitude that came behind these apes. And up until then, there were very few projects that had really good art, fantastic marketing at the time. And also this consistent attitude, right, which 
is very personal to the DJ names. And so when that project launched in August, it was a wild west. There were many problems with the launch, but it ended up being one of the most successful launches. Uh, and from that point, Solana as a blockchain really exploded. The price went from 48 to 150 within a few months of that launch. And then people were seeing that, hey, Solana is actually a very viable blockchain for NFTs to be minted uh, and sold and for communities to form. And it's just grown exponentially since that. It's still a fraction of what we see on Ethereum, but it's growing every day and it's fantastic. So that sort of just sets the scene, at least, for uh, what the DGEN Ape Academy is. It's an NFT project on the Solana blockchain. Now, uh, as we mentioned before, community is one of the reasons why you join these things. And the DGEN Ape community has got a very strong community, particularly in Hong Kong, where for some reason, Maybe it's just the Hong Kong lifestyle or it's just something that resonates really well with this attitude of having fun and doing whatever we want and, and just going crazy. They formed uh, Degenerate Ape Academy Hong Kong. And they were probably one of the most organized sub-communities of the NFT. And they somehow got access to this huge wide, ultra-widescreen billboard in the middle of uh, Central, which is probably one of the most busiest places in the world in terms of population density and foot traffic. Uh, and they had access to that screen. And then they made a video uh, about DGNA Hong Kong. Uh, they identified various apes within the community. They had them up on screen. Um, and then everyone could see it. It was amazing. It was wonderful marketing, all for free, done by community members. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I used to live in Hong Kong before. I lived there for just over six years. So when I saw that project, it made me laugh. You're right, Central District in Hong Kong, it is or used to be the most expensive real estate in the world. So to put it mildly, a very good placement. So you also mentioned one thing, because I guess I'm doing a poorly job to help the uninitiated here. And you have helped me a few times when you say, let me backtrack. So let me backtrack myself here. What does minting an NFT means? Because that's so addictive, right? I just want to make sure we bring everybody along the road here to understand what minting is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's actually a very good point to raise. So minting is when an NFT is created, right? So typically, when it first starts, the project will come together, the people behind it will start designing the art, they will set the blockchain up. And then there'll be a period of time where they go, okay, we are going to mint, right? And everyone will have a chance to connect their wallets, click a button, pay the you know underlying Solana currency fee, and then what will pop up in your wallet is an NFT. And this experience is the same as opening a packet of basketball cards almost back in the day, right? At any time, you could get something really rare or they just could be just common inside. But it's super exciting and it's very addictive. Uh, and that's basically the, the creation of the NFTs. And then after that, they trade on what we call the secondary markets, on auction houses. And that's where if they get sold for a certain price, the original creators get a cut of that. So minting is the token generation event, if you will. Yeah, I'm only going to graphically describe how addictive it is. So I recently minted uh, Generate Trash Panda. And I was so excited about that project that when I did the final minting step, I actually did it in front of my wife. Our two daughters were with us at the time. And my wife even recorded in a video. My wife, who was uninitiated not long before that, she said, hey, what if we get a Mythic? 
it will be even more uh, rare if we have it on a video and we see our faces. So she made a video. Uh, sadly, we didn't get a mythic, but uh, it was a very great experience. So yeah, I concur with you that it's very addictive and part of the process, right? Yeah, and it's completely random as well, right? So a, a lot of us uh, in that very first mint for DGen Ape Academy, that was the first mint for most of us, right? Um, if you were forward-thinking enough and you participated in the board Ape Mint, you could have bought these things for a couple of hundred of dollars. And I think that mint went on for like a week or something because no one really knew about NFTs back then. And the minimum price of one of those things is now $150,000 USD. So imagine turning $300 into that. Now, not every project will be as successful, okay, as Board Ape, but that's sort of the mythic kind of uh, fantasy around NFTs. Uh, with DJN Ape Academy, uh, some of us minted that as well. And again, it was, you know, $300 per NFT, which seems like a lot, but uh, the minimum price for them now is about $6,000. So there is a chance uh, in most mints that whatever you open could be one of these things. It, it's infinitesimally small, but it does happen. Um, and it does change lives overnight sometimes. Yeah, but the chances are so small, right? When you calculate, is kind of ridiculous to even think you will get it. But it is fun. So that's a good experience. And you mentioned that not all projects will go great. Let's say somebody comes to you and say, I don't need you to tell me any name of any project unless you feel like you want to. But if you ask you, what are some of the uh, things that I can check in a new project or existing project to verify that this will be worth for me to participate on? Yeah, this is a great question. For the listeners, I want to say this. The examples I gave before are the unicorn examples, right? They're the ones which were very early on and you had to be super lucky. These days on Ethereum and Solana, there is a NFT launch almost every day, and most of them will be going to zero or not worth that much, right? You can't necessarily strike lightning all the time. So it's becoming incredibly harder to pick NFTs that will make you money if you're only out for the money aspect. And that's something people need to understand. Don't be gambling things that you can't afford to participate. Spend a little bit just to educate yourself and enjoy it. So then the question, as you say, how do you pick a good project? How do you make sure that whatever you look at next is not going to be making you lose money? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it comes down to two things. Uh, number one is the development team. So uh, how good are they? How experienced are they? Is it people who are experienced and it's a team of five to 10 um, who have got backgrounds in doing this, whether they have doxxed themselves, meaning revealed their identities to the world is also another plank of accountability. Uh, so the dev team is quite an important thing to focus on. And then the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is the community, right? I think we've mentioned this word many times before. Uh, it's very hard to gauge a community before an NFT has come out. The only way you can do that is to go on social media like Twitter. Uh, but the best way is to go into their Discord, which is where most people uh, create their communities. And there you can enter the conversation flow. You can see how many people are there. You can see if real people are answering questions or not. You can see if people are excited by it or not. And that's one way to gauge, right? If you're inside the Discord and people are not really answering questions, it seems a little bit dead, then you should maybe raise your eyebrow, right? Those are the two things I would highlight. Yeah, those are great things. Two great points. So let's say somebody wants to get into the NFT space, but wants some form of utility outside just the beautiful image 
Uh, I have seen recently a project where if you buy the NFT, it gives you some form of subscription to software. Uh, is there any other use cases that you see for NFTs today or maybe in the you know, near future where things will work if you own an NFT? Yeah, utility is the next buzzword right now because now that the space is evolving, just having a picture is no longer good enough, right? And I think one of the, the things you see some NFTs do, and sometimes this is also a bit of a red flag, is when they suggest that they'll be building a game. And the NFT that you use will be a character in the game or will give you access to a game. Now, that's all really cool if it does happen. But building a game is uh, extraordinarily difficult, requires a lot of resources, uh, knowledge, and know-how. So if you spot an NFT community where it's only a, a handful of people and they are claiming that their roadmap includes a game, then you should always be very wary about that. But if it includes a team of people that have had experience of this and you can see that there are many people working on it, uh, then that's something that you may want to investigate a little further. I think one example is Orrery on the Solana network, where there's a real team building out a game there. They've showed demos. But again, that's still a few years out. So buying the NFT now exposes you to a fair bit of risk in terms of execution. In terms of other utility, we've seen some communities uh, create tokens. So if you have uh, a certain NFT, they will issue you uh, a, a, a cryptocurrency, for example. Sometimes those cryptocurrencies are worth something uh, and you can sell them, or you can use those cryptocurrencies to maybe change part of your NFT picture, right? I think uh, that's something we see on a project called CyberKongs. It's quite popular on Ethereum. Um, and at some point, you know, the banana token that they were issuing out was uh, worth quite a lot of money. So that's another form of utility that NFTs can bring. Although sometimes that attracts uh, regulatory issues because if uh, these NFTs start paying people a dividend, then that might bring them under the purview of the SEC because that is a security. So there are certain things that NFTs can do with utility that make it a little bit tricky, but there are projects that are trying to innovate on the front. The last thing I would say, and, and maybe this is something for the future, you might see corporations start to issue NFTs. Uh, or even music groups and that sort of thing. And if you have the NFT, then you get special benefits. Like, you know, you get to access a product, you get to uh, access a concert, um, you get to access special content that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I think people are starting to use NFTs for those reasons. And that's where the utility will come from. You know, at the end of the day, Alfonso, if you really think about it, NFTs are about engagement. When pe people used to engage on Facebook and WebTube, but NFTs is something different because you own it. There's suddenly a uh, pride with that ownership and you are automatically more engaged, right? You automatically actually do things with it. And so I think that's what corporations are realizing out there. It's the next frontier of engagement. You're getting a really hooked in audience. And that's clear when you owned the NFT, you want to participate and you feel you're part of that movement, right? But I also own shares of companies that might also give me the dividends of I don't feel like a groupie of that company. It's not that, let's say, I buy shares of Google tomorrow. I'm not going to go and buy a T-shirt of Google and tell the rest of the world. But a lot of people, that's just that when they get an NFT because of the benefit. And I think what NFT has created is a way to have a very good way to monetize the super funds, right? Or even create super funds as they are not super funds. So it's kind of a bottoms up uh, acceleration of somebody becoming a super fund just by becoming a fan 
you accelerate to the top level because you have ownership, you skin on the game, you have some form of dividends coming to you, whether it's new tokens, whether it's new NFTs, whether it's access. So I think that's a really important cultural movement that can be misunderstood from the outside because it feels like a cult, right? Uh, when you're in the outside. Oh yeah, it feels like a cult because you see people move heaven and earth sometimes and they talk about it and that's all they talk about. But if you own a share in Google, right, all these really fantastic companies, I mean, how often do you actually engage with those companies? How often do you speak to the CEO or management or actually feel like you are recognized by any of that? Now, you might not need that. It's a financial investment, right? So it's, it's very different. But that's the thing that NFTs give you. They give you that engagement with a community that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily get. So they're slightly different beasts, but this is why they engender such commitment and loyalty from their holders. One last point in utility is play to earn. You might have heard about this game called Axie Infinity, and I'm sure there's more. There's a Star Atlas coming to the Solana platform. So there's people out there that has actually starting to make a living from playing video games, and they actually make real-life money. How could you explain that to somebody who's outside the space that you could make a career from playing video games? That, while it sounds like a dream for somebody who's like 10 to 20 years old, if I explain that to my mom, she will absolutely not believe anything I just said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't had a lot of experience with uh, Axie, but there are games like that that are very popular. There's an NFT attached to them. Uh, and the more you play them, you earn some in-game currency. And then those things uh, can be swapped for USD on certain exchanges. You see, that's the beauty of Web3. They're creating exchanges out there where people determine what they will pay for stuff, right? So, you know, if you get a token from a game, most people in the real world would be like, well, what's this worth? Like, is anyone really going to pay me for this? But on Web3, there are people out there who would pay money for certain tokens. There are people who would pay money for the rewards that you receive for playing a game. And that's what Web3 has enabled. They've created an exchange where people can do all this. And what that powers is games where people can participate and make money from it. And you're absolutely right. If we tell this to our parents, they would be shaking their heads. They wouldn't understand. But this is the evolution of the world. This is the evolution of entertainment and what's popular. And for a lot of people that live in countries that maybe the minimum wage is low, these games, these opportunities are a ticket to a better life for them. And what it feels like this is going to be a major redistribution of capital in the world, right? So it goes from a centralized platform that benefits from all our likes and keep all the money. And when you divide that across the users, while obviously it doesn't look such a big bucket as combined, it is a fair amount of money, especially for people in developed countries. So I think I'm most excited about that in the whole space. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about what a DAO is. And then I will push about your part of a DAO that you run yourself. So for then uninitiated, what is a decentralized autonomous organization known as a DAO? What does it do? So before we spoke about communities, once you buy an NFT, you have access to a community, right? How are these communities run, right? It's a Discord server, but can we do more than just a bunch of people hanging out in a chat room, right? Because most of the uninitiated would think, well, if I wanted to just hang out in a chat room, I would just create something and, and we would chat all day, right? But no, what did these things evolve into are organized groups of people who, because of the passion that they have from the NFT, can organize their resources uh, to achieve 
and do things. Okay, And that's what a decentralized autonomous organization is. It's basically, if you have an NFT, you have a vote, and then we can decide to do things. And typically, these DAOs will end up getting funding through various different sources. Maybe the project team um, gives some of their secondary revenues to the DAO. And then the DAO can go and do marketing initiatives, can do things to help grow the brand themselves. And the reason why it's not the dev team and project creators that are doing this is because this has now become a community thing. When you have thousands of people working for you, they can do much more than a dev team of 10 people who are developing the NFT, the picture, and what potential utility it has in future. So a decentralized organization is just simply a way of saying a community comes together, they pool their resources, and they can do whatever they want but they will have their own voting system to get things done, like a democracy. It's also a way to get people together to act in something, for example, trying to buy the U.S. Constitution, as we saw recently. So what these decentralized autonomous organizations can do is to connect individuals that don't know each other, but agree on a common goal and purpose, and they will all benefit from that and succeeding. And I've seen you excelling at doing that for the, the generate DAO that you um, I'm not sure how you describe your role in that. You call yourself a... What would be a good way to describe your responsibility within that particular DAO? You know, they call it the student council because it's all in keeping with uh, the flavor of it being an academy. Very on brand. <laughs> exactly. The way it works is, you know, the Degenerate Ape Academy has a development team, right? They're across the world. There's a, it's a whole bunch of them working on building utility. So it's not just a 3D picture... Uh, they will have the second generation of breeding between the NFTs. This sounds crazy, but all it is is creating more value and utility. Uh, there's merchandise uh, that they're going to put together. All this is part of the, the project team's efforts. But outside of that, a community has developed. There's 4,000 odd people that own a degenerate ape. And this community does what they want to do. If we want to run an initiative for charity, we can go ahead and do that. If we want to market something like the apes in Hong Kong, we can go and do that, right? As long as we have the funds to do it. But they are separate from the dev team. Now, they take a lot of inspiration and they're in constant contact with the dev teams to understand what's coming and what's happening. But ultimately, it's the people that own the apes. It's the people that care about the apes. It's the people that connect because they share this degen and, and enthusiastic culture, but they want to uh, do something to make it great, invite more people in and really help build the brand. Not only does it build the value of their NFT token uh, over time, if they can create something great, but it also gives them a sense of pride and community that they otherwise might not have had. In its purest form, a DAO should basically be anyone can raise a vote and then it's just voted upon and then they will decide to act upon it. That's the purest form of a DAO. And the truth is that not all DAOs can be like this, especially in the early stages when you set something up, because you need a couple of people to drive initiatives. You need some people to make decisions. So uh, in the case of a DGN Ape Academy, they elected about 13 of us through a, a vote for NFT token holders. Uh, and then We've been working on initiatives and, and driving sort of uh, programs and seeing what we could do to work with other NFT cultures and then marketing initiatives as well. And so that's where, where I come in. I'm just one of these guys, a, com a passionate community member that's been helping to set up initiatives with uh, some really bright and smart people who are donating time to do it. 
I just want to comment on something. You mentioned there are funds on this DAO, and this is not a DAO like the one we, I just mentioned about buying the constitution, where random people will actually put money on a potluck, and then that potluck tries to purchase something. In your case, does the DGEN DAO has recurring revenue streams from transactions that happen with apes or similar? So right now, no. I mean, I think the idea is to move to that model, and we are working that out with the project team, because once that happens, that gives us a little bit more flexibility to operate. But in the meanwhile, we are tied it over because we do have uh, very generous people donating and various different initiatives where we can use some of those funds to set up other things that might generate revenue. One example, we've set this thing called Validator, right? It's called the Degenerate Infrastructure Core Services Validator or DIX because we like to be a little bit cheeky. Uh, but what that does is that it helps secure the Solana network. Uh, we talked about blockchain before, and for transactions to be secured, you need validators all around the world to be taking turns in making sure that the ledger is written of who has sent what to who, right? And verify the transactions. And so the more validators there are spread across the world, the better. Uh, it is not a cheap cost to set up one of these things, but we set it up as a DAO. We've uh, put funds to, to doing that. Uh, and part of that is to improve the Solana network. And because as one of the original NFT projects that launched the network, we felt that it was our place to help contribute. And so that's one of the things that hopefully, uh, once we scale it up, will let us generate some revenue to pump back into community building initiatives. We are also you know, doing something along the lines of uh, merch that we can set up for our members. And you know, whoever wants to contribute and, and get some merch in return, that will also help us fund some of our community initiatives. So Recently, DDGen sent people to the COP in Glasgow to talk about climate change. Is that something that happened? Or I'm imagining this. No, that definitely happened. Uh, we didn't send the individual. He went there himself. Solly is his name. And uh, he is someone who in real life is an environmental uh, professional uh, and, and a consultant in that industry. Right? And sustainability is something that animals and apes, uh, we care a lot about. And what he did was go there, he reported on COP26, but here's the interesting thing, Alfonso. I mean, in his professional life, there has to be a certain decorum in the way that he expresses himself. So while he's there during the day, he's probably being very professional uh, and following certain guidelines on decorum. But, you know, once that ends, he hops on Twitter with his uh, ape persona and he's able to give a more unfiltered version of events of COP26 and to alert people that, hey, you know, are these countries really doing much of what they're saying? Uh, are they just sitting here and talking about what they could do? And so the idea of that was just to raise awareness. Um, it's almost like he is playing Batman uh, with his ape persona. Uh, and, you know, during the days that he's a Bruce Wayne working as a, a consultant uh, professionally. So th that was one of the, the initiatives that we've run as a sub-community. It was mostly one or two people that, that uh, handled that one. I see. I thought it was organized by the DAO, but that is a very interesting mm -hmm. story. That's right. Well, I think the geeking time is here. So for anybody listening that everything we say is over the head or they're a little bit tired of NFTs and crypto, probably a good time to drop off but if you're interested i would like to get your take saying eclectic and everything that has happened so far since the minting and the launch of the degenerate trash pandas and especially talk about the most recent controversial things that have happened so if anybody's interested this is a really good story to follow so even if you are new to nfts you might want to listen 
So can you tell us what has happened recently with this project? So this one's a really interesting story. I mean, so many things have happened within a week that it's just crazy. But to give some context, uh, we spoke about the Degenerate Ape Academy project. They had an expansion to the project called the Degenerate Trash Pandas. And this would be a collection of 20,000 new NFTs with some really fantastic art from the same artist, Monolith, uh, and also backed by a, a really good development team. And... You know, this was really popular because it was linked to Degenerate Ape Academy, one of the original projects on the blockchain. Now, one of the problems with the minting process that we had mentioned before is what they call bots. Usually in a mint, when it's time to come, you know, when you're saying that you and your wife were looking at pressing the mint button, you just press the button and then it would deduct some Solana from your account and then you get an NFT. But at the same time, some people run programs which are able to press that button or interact with that button a lot faster than you are, right? They're able to spam it and they're able to get as many of these things and these tokens as possible. And so what happened was that they wanted to create this thing called the fair launch protocol to prevent situations like that. And the way a fair launch protocol worked was rather than just press a button to mint, you would basically have the process divided into several stages. The first stage would get everyone to set a price for what they thought the NFT should cost. The second stage, you would get to adjust your price up or down, depending on what the median outcome was. And then the third stage is just a lottery. So if you pay up the price, then you'll enter a lottery to either uh, get to mint or not. So the reason why this helps slow down the bots is because there's three gate stages to slow them down. But also every time you make a bid, it costs you a little bit of money, right? So this way, the bots were disincentivized from spamming because each time they bid, you know, it would cost them 40 bucks. So that was the fair launch protocol. Now, in the first stage, everyone's got to set a price, right? In the past, people had set a narrow range like between two sol and three sol, which is probably like four hundred to six hundred dollars per NFT, but in this particular launch, the developers decided to set it very wide so that they could have true price discovery. The minimum was 0.1 sol or twenty dollars, roughly at the time, and the maximum ten sol was, which is about two thousand dollars. So, depending on um, all the bids that people put in the price would be set between $20 and $2,000. And so what had happened was once people understood how this system worked, right? You know, I mean, it was a bit confusing. Even I didn't really understand it. And so I took the time to, to go through it. And then I shared my findings on a thread in Twitter and we made sure that we made it public so people knew exactly how this worked. But once people realized how it worked, they, if everyone bid delete the cheapest price, then that's what it would be priced at. and in actual fact, that's what happened. So everybody bid 0.1, and all of a sudden, people were getting this NFT for $20, when in most cases, people will probably say the fair value is closer to about 200 And so this thing called the bid small movement was created by the community, and then they spread it, and then other people started to uh, jump on the bid small movement. And before you know it, 70% of all bids were at $20. And at the end of the day, that's what it priced at. So a lot of people had a chance to, to enter this uh, raffle, so to speak, at a really low cost, when the typical average price would be anywhere between 300 to 400 you know, for an NFT. So that 
in in a sense to me was super exciting because it was like wow some people worked out how to create a movement it was almost and deciding what they would price it at and that was yeah i remember participating and aware of the movement but i never thought it would get enough traction to convince everybody to be small because if that happened you have a larger number of participants on the second round so your chances of winning a token are much smaller so that's right so if it's priced at 20 dollars, there should be a lot less chance for you to get it but at the same time a lot of people misunderstood the system and they thought oh if the if the max is around 2000 that's what's going to cost me so i'm not even going to p- bother participating and so all of a sudden you had this perfect storm of where people that bid were able to get it for cheap, but then not enough people were bidding. So your chances of winning the lottery was actually just a bit above 50% is what I worked out. So it actually opened up accessibility to a lot of people. And this was one of the most interesting and heartening things was that all of a sudden, a lot of people were able to get it for cheap. The other aspect of this is I mentioned a bidding fee before, right? And in this case, all bidding fees were going to go to charity. And at the end of the day, the bidding fees were 0.2 sol, so about $40. The bidding fees ended up being more than what the, the team got, right? So they actually raised more for charity than what the project team got. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the right outcome either because the project team needs to be uh, compensated for the work, the art, and all the things that they're building, right? But hopefully through secondary sales, that will make up for it you know, to some degree. So maybe it wasn't the best outcome for the team, but it was, certainly was the best outcome sitting here. And yeah, it was a member of story. And, and um, so the idea was... I guarantee you I didn't bet 0.1. I put a lot more because I never expect that to happen. So it was an interesting chain of events. So it takes us to the point where the Mint starts opening, where people can go to this website. And like you said, click Mint and you get your NFT because the money has already been deducted from your wallet. But something interesting happened at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I described for the, for the listeners the, the three-stage stage process. So after you go into the lottery, you have a 50% chance to win. And if you win, you get this thing called DTP token. So at a later stage, you can switch this token for a Panda token, right? Now, what happened was that this switching event took place one week later. Because the dev team needed to iron out a few things. They had to make sure they got things right. And during that period, people created a market for these tokens. So they were trading back and forth, right? So if you had won them, you could actually go and sell them on a decentralized exchange or buy some more if you wanted. The second step is when the gates opened, people were able to start switching their tokens to get pandas. And people started doing that one week later. Now, when a curious thing happened, a lot of people didn't end up getting that super rare or mythic panda that could change their lives. A lot of people minted a lot of common and uncommon pandas. Now, that's not a bad thing because the art's still fantastic. But of course, the fun of this is that you might actually open something that changes your life, right? I mean, I used up 40 or so of these tokens and nothing. I was a little bit sad. I was very sad. I was like, how is this statistically possible that opening so many of these, I still don't open up a Michael Jordan type card out of a basketball pack, right? Surely out of one of them, you would get something. And the funny thing was that this wasn't just happening to me. This was happening to multiple people. And then somebody in our community chat posted a picture. They said, hey, I've spotted in this wallet four or five mythic tokens. And the reason why this is so suspicious is because the chances of even minting one of these is low. You know, It's less than 1%. It's like point something percent. So if you think about probabilities, 
the ability to mint four or five of them in the one wallet and nothing else is infinitesimal to almost impossible, right? So immediately people knew something was afoot. How is it that so many people with many tokens opening up their basketball pack, so to speak, and not getting anything? And then this wallet that someone somehow saw had five Michael Jordan cards, so to speak, or five mythical pandas in there. So then we knew something was up. And I don't know how you felt about that, Alfonso. And you said that you guys recorded what you opened. But but did you notice anything or did you hear anything at that point? No, I was on the early half of the opening. So they had the delay of the 24 hours and we opened no long after that. Our token is within the first 10K or just over the 10K. So we are... Like you say, I had a common slash uncommon one, but I didn't know that what was happening behind the scenes. So some of us did some work and we found more wallets. All of a sudden, we found like 10, 20 wallets with all these mythics, but no commons on commons. And essentially what happened was someone was able to work out the order of the mint and know when to switch their token to get a mythic panda. And this shouldn't be the case, but this was a known flaw at the time in the smart contract protocol called the candy machine. That's what it's called. Now, knowing the order uh, doesn't necessarily give you an advantage because if Alfonso, me, and someone else is you know minting at the same time, we're all competing. So if let's say there's like 20,000 pandas, and if you know the 5,000th panda is a super rare one, at any time, many of us could be trying to, to get that 5,000th one. So it could be at 4,995, and then there's like 10 people bidding for uh, swapping their token. So how do you know? Like Even though you know the order, it's still difficult to time. So what ended up happening was that we realized that somebody was using bots. What they would do was that, number one, they knew the order already. So when the order approached uh, a mythic token, so let's say number 5,000, they would use bots to spam the network and slow it down so others couldn't uh, bid or swap their token. And then they would use bots to bid themselves and make sure that as soon as 5,000 came up, they were the only ones that were able to get it. And that's how that actor managed to scoop up 184 at at current count, super rares and mythics. That's why people like Alfonso and myself and other people were not opening anything or Michael Jordan type level uh, mythic pandas, right? And the crazy part of this is that when we did the investigation, we found that there were hundreds of wallets that uh, were seeded with some stall uh, and used as bots to carry out this plan. I mean, it was relatively sophisticated and it was uh, quite a greedy exercise. So it's, they siphoned out a lot of uh, the super rares. Now, they've since sold some of those those back into market. Uh, you know, I, I myself acquired one unknowingly, uh, but that is part of the, the crazy situation that happened. So just so we understand, this person executed a very complex operation to unethically possess 184, you mentioned, uh, very valuable tokens, and then they can go and sell it. So while it's not technically legal, it is highly unethical. So just for anybody following along, how much could one of those mythics or super rare, as you have described them, could fetch for on the secondary market? How much money are we talking about for a single one? Oh yeah, I mean, for some of the rare ones, they were going for twenty to thirty thousand USD. You know, some fifty thousand, and I think one of the most expensive one went for two hundred thousand USD. 
there's clearly a justification for bad apples to perform such an operation because the rewards are tremendous. Have we done anything as a community? What is the next step to avoid this from happening and take the learnings and move forward? So I think this was a landmark outcome, right? A lot of things happened to create the perfect storm for them to be able to do this, right? Because there was a one-week delay between the end of the fair launch protocol and when people could start swapping their tokens, they were able to use that one week to acquire as many tokens on market. So basically, to be able to open as many packets as possible. So that was one aspect that made it uh, easy for them. The other aspect was some evidence points to them having done some of this on past mints as before. And because the period in which you could swap your token was a long one, he was able to like time it a lot more. But typically, it happens very quickly and you, and you can't really um, pick and choose. But the window was open for quite a long time and there were 20,000 tokens to swap. So this was a perfect storm of factors that enabled him to scoop up every single one. And the last thing is that you know, he had practiced it over time. So I think what's happened now is that uh, the guys who wrote this protocol have paused the mint. They've heard what people have said and they're rewriting it such that the bots up will be unable to do what they're doing now. So as unfortunate as all of this was, uh, it really did help bring some change to the uh, industry. It was extremely unethical, but it's not legally actionable given how early we are in this environment. It's just extremely greedy and uh, very damaging to the community. One of the things actually, Alfonso, It took a whole lot of different people uh, looking at all the transactions on the blockchain to identify these wallets in the first place. And in actual fact, we were able to identify the individual involved. I'm sad to say it was actually a community member. And even though you can be a community member, there's always going to be different people in there, good or bad. Uh, In this case, it happened to be one that was able to exploit the system to its fullest extent. But the fact that the community came together to find the transactions, get the proof out there and warn people, uh, it might have been too late, actually, uh, to, to solve a lot of things. But the action taken was swift. And that was one of the positive things that I took out of this is that there's a very passionate community trying to do the right thing. And if I'm not mistaken, this person that you have contacted directly, he has returned a few of these tokens that are in the low range of the price and the team is going to airdrop them to anybody who participated on the initial minting, right? Yeah, I mean, he picked up about 180 to 200 super rare mythics and he sent back about 30. Some of them were rare, but a lot of them had common traits and some of them were ones where he missed the target that he was going for. And so we felt it was our duty to send that back to the team and then they will try and redistribute them in a lottery system to people who minted who tried to mint fairly. That's very fair. So how do you see this chain of events, like you said, the perfect storm playing out for this project? How do you see playing together on the long term? You think this would be net positive because of the theatrics that is created and the association with the brand? Oh, look, I think marketing-wise, it's going to bring a lot of attention to it. It was the catalyst and impetus for the industry gurus to really rewrite the protocol and try and find a solution. I think it's a story for the ages. I mean, it might not be the most publicized one, but I think the more people find out about it, the more interest there would be around it. In the short term, it will definitely do some harm to people because there are a lot of people that uh, supported this project and they will feel hurt from it. There are a lot of new people for which this was their first mint. The story that you gave me before how your wife and your family were, were filming the process. Imagine if you open a Mythic, that would have been a great family personal moment 
to share, but now that's been robbed from you, right? The possibility of that it has been robbed. And so I feel for people like that because I remember what it was like in my first mint. And when I minted something that was uh, relatively rare, it was, was very exciting. And that's what got me into this industry. So it was very upsetting. It was also very upsetting that it was a member of the community that was respected because of his abilities. But it is part of the risk here and it, because it's so early. Going forward, though, I do think that is a landmark. It is something that is part of uh, NFT history, at least on the Solana blockchain. Uh, and hopefully, uh, it can be something that uh, will be good for the brand because a lot of these things have made them th their way back through the market to people who believe in the project and what the team is building. Yeah, you mentioned before that many NFTs are launched today, which are daily and not just a single project, but even Solana, you can come probably 10 to 20 per day, depending on the day will eventually go to zero. It's probably correct to tell people to apply caution when getting into the space because winners win and the blue chips will win and anything below most likely will be down to zero. I cannot tell you when, but I can tell you it will happen, right? So I think this theatrics add to this project to become a blue chip simply because... Yeah, you know, there's a thing about provenance, right? And uh, a shared experience, no matter how painful it is, you were there, you were part of this. Um, and maybe if Solana as a blockchain continues to do well in a few years' time, this is a historical object almost. Well, that is uh, our objective here. So, San Eclectic, is there anything that you wish we had covered today, whether it's about the recent mint with the trash pandas or anything else in general that you would like to talk? No, I think we covered a lot of ground um, and I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and even just the opportunity to try and, and share a bit and educate people who might be interested in this space. And for anybody who wants to learn more about it, I recommend them to follow you on Twitter, which is at Saint Eclectic. Is there any other resource that you recommend to people or any other Twitter follow that you tend to recommend for anybody who wants to, in a healthy way, learn about NFTs? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ones out there. Someone called Punk6592. He's great. And he's based his pseudonym and persona around his CryptoPunk. And what he writes are some really fantastic high-level thesis about NFTs, about engagement, about community. He's already got a very large following, you know, 100,000 plus. He is very educational and really relates it to real-life principles. And that's what I really like about him. Yeah, I second that. He is unbelievable. He puts tons of time on everything he does and is very educational. And I think you could be the C529 of Solana yourself. So, because you also put a lot of work. So, that's very high praise. <laughs> that's, that's very high praise. I mean, you know, I would not even see myself in that category, but I'm just very passionate about it. And I think for me, it's easy because the Solana community is so great and it's maybe still growing. So I have at least a chance to make an impact. Well, I made this prediction. If Solana is give or take 10% market cap of Ethereum today, you are give or take 10% of his followers on Twitter. So if we have the great flipping happening, then maybe you can come at that. <laughs> so I highly enjoy our conversation. I really thank you for your time. The same closing question I ask everybody who come on the podcast, and that is, what are you most excited about the future? What I'm excited to see about the future is how NFTs evolve, how they become the next level of engagement uh, for, for corporations, for companies, for artists, for musicians. How does that next level of adoption come in? I'm excited to see that. We've already seen it come in waves and things crest and then they fall. But at some point, 
uh, people are going to understand what all of this brings. And when we onboard the next 100 million people, I think that's when we really see a true flourishing of what we could do in terms of utility, in terms of sharing our love of uh, community, in terms of sharing our love of innovative ways of doing things. And that, to me, is the most exciting thing in the future to look forward to. And that's a very positive and great way to close this. So Saint Eclectic, thank you so much for your time. This was a long call, but I enjoy it head to toe and I cannot wait to release it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alfonso. Had a great time. All the best. If you like this conversation, please tell one or two friends. Also, please leave a comment and a rating wherever you get your podcast from to help like-minded people discover the show. If you want to reach to us directly, our email is hi at kintsugi.com or you can hit me directly on Twitter at Alfonso underscore Comino. Thank you for listening. We are all gonna make it. Adelante. Adelante.